Hong Kong is on the brink. Injuries, there were arrests. Beijing has described the pro-democracy protests as, quote, conduct close to terrorism. The central government would not sit on its hands and watch. Demonstrators have been taken to the streets with no signs of protests coming to a halt. It's a smaller group of people, but very intense. The violence is being ratcheted up. But protesters say it's all too little, too late. This uproar has resurrected long-standing conflicts between Hong Kong and China on the question of sovereignty. Could Hong Kong be headed toward another Tiananmen Square? In this new podcast, we follow what's happening on the ground in Hong Kong and talk to experts who are looking ahead to what will happen next. I'm Andrew Schwartz with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies here at CSIS. This is Hong Kong on the Brink. In this first episode of Hong Kong on the Brink, we ask, what is Beijing's next move? Tensions are reaching a new high as Hong Kong protesters begin to deploy force in their demonstrations. This begs the question, Will Beijing use force in Hong Kong? With us today, along with my colleague Jude Blanchett, is Professor Min Chin Pei, Chairman of the Government Department at Claremont McKenna College in California and author of China's Crony Capitalism. Min Chin, welcome to Hong Kong on the Brink. Thank you. And Jude, this is so great. You just joined CSIS. So glad to have you here with us. Guys, this is a really critical time. We're talking today. It's Thursday afternoon in Washington. You know, the clock is ticking and things seem to have settled down a little bit in Hong Kong while we're talking right now. But as you said, mentioned, the situation's fluid. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the situation is indeed very fluid. Things change really minute by minute. On my way here, I saw this piece of news. The Hong Kong government just arrested five demonstrators for defacing the Chinese national flag. How did they deface it? Well, they just specifically threw the Chinese national flag into the Victoria Harbor, which is the main harbor in Hong Kong. And that is a criminal act, according to, I think, the Hong Kong law. I think they did pass a law banning, defacing, or defiling Chinese flag. I worry that if the Hong Kong government keeps on arresting demonstrators, during this relatively calm period, because we're really in day two after the Tuesday turmoil at the airport. If they keep increasing the number of arrests, that can enrage demonstrators and bring them back to the streets. So this is definitely not the thing to do at this point. But it appears that Hong Kong government is doing this. Whether they are doing this at the direction of Beijing, we don't know. But this is not a good sign. And Jude, President Trump has weighed into this. He's said that Xi Jinping should sit down with the protesters. What about that? What do you what do you think about that? And how is that affecting the equation, if at all? I think the prospect of Xi Jinping sitting down with the protesters is an unlikely way to resolve this. The, the last time a head of the party was seen in front of protesters was Zhao Ziyang in uh, 1989, and he was later sacked. So You've seen over the past 24 hours a progression in Trump's thinking on this. He's gone from saying essentially that this is more or less an internal issue 
to yesterday morning, you saw a scattered response from uh, members of the administration, in, including uh, Wilbur Ross. And then it seems overnight he made a calculated shift that he was going to try to pressure or incentivize Xi Jinping to start talks with the protesters as a way of salvaging trade deal. But again, I, I don't suspect for a moment that Beijing is, is thinking of flying General Secretary Xi Jinping down to Hong Kong for a face-to-face. -face. I think Trump's, President Trump's statement reflects a great deal of ignorance about the relationship between Hong Kong and China. By convention, by norm, if not by law, Xi Jinping cannot actually go to Hong Kong and meet with its people. Xi Jinping can only meet with the Beijing-appointed leader of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam. I think the most appropriate thing to do, if there should be a dialogue, that should take place between Carrie Lam and the protesters. This is a technical point. And I want to echo what Jude said. No Chinese leader would dignify or lend legitimacy to the protesters by meeting with them. Well, let me ask it another way. I mean, President Trump tends to talk in broad terms. And I think what his people would say that he meant was that the Chinese government under the leadership of Xi Jinping should engage the protesters. Maybe he didn't mean technically Xi himself should sit down specifically with any protest leaders themselves. But I think what his team would say is that she should directly engage somehow. Maybe that is what he, what he's trying to say. I don't know. Yeah. He's somebody who likes to engage. He himself is engaging with the North Korean leader. He's trying to engage with the Iranians. He's someone who engages. I don't know. The, the statements by Donald Trump about ways to resolve this are so fantastically unimportant to uh, how an actual resolution will occur that I think we, we can put them aside for a moment. The, the only statement that matters from the U.S. government is are we paying attention to the potential uh, use of force by Beijing? And are we going to try to raise the cost to Beijing uh, for any such actions? Anything else about the uh, art of the deal and, and how Xi Jinping should negotiate with the protesters, I think, is utterly irrelevant to this. This is so much bigger than, than Trump's tweets, to, to echo Professor Pei's comment. So let's talk about the use of force, which is really, I think, what both of you think is the key point here. What would the use of force by Beijing in Hong Kong here signify? What are the implications of it? Well, it will signify the exhaustion of all other alternatives. The use of force is truly Beijing's last resort. That's why I believe they're going to just wait. Their current strategy is to wait out, exhaust the protesters, wait for the protesters to make mistakes, and alienate the mainstream population. The protests, unfortunately, just fell into that trap by occupying the airport and causing disruptions that were not popular. Was that a miscalculation by the protesters? Oh, absolutely. I think they should not have done that because up to that point, they remained largely within the bounds of peace and reason. But taking over an airport is a step too far. And disrupting all the flights and stopping... Oh, yes. So they went beyond the pale. Oh, absolutely. They, they were inconveniencing and causing real economic harm to ordinary people. But I think Beijing will likely wait. If things are moving in its direction, it would be foolish. What, to... makes, what would make their patience run out? Well, I think the Hong Kong government will have to lose control of the situation. So I can envision a scenario of general strike. Hong Kong paralyzed for a week, not just for a day. That will force Beijing to act. And not just the airport, but other services is what you're suggesting. 
And the, the tactics that the protesters have been using are an evolution from the umbrella protests. You, you saw the other day that the local Hong Kong government put an injunction on protesters going to the airport, and the protesters largely seem to abide by that. And that's why some people are talking about this as maybe being a shift in the cadence of the protests. But even in the pop-up protest model that we've been seeing, the reason that they've been doing these sort of guerrilla-style protests is in part to get around the injunctions, which were a successful tool that the Hong Kong government used to essentially neuter or disintegrate the protests in 2014. So both on the police side and on the protester side, we're not seeing a redux of 2014. We're seeing both sides escalate towards a more radical form of behavior on the police side. As we were talking about before we started recording, the fact that police were firing tear gas into the metro is an indication that they're at a new level of, of aggressiveness. And likewise, I think there's a sense of desperation amongst the protesters. And to me, that that means while we may be seeing a temporary pause here, I'm fairly pessimistic uh, on this because we've got a mutually reinforcing circle of distrust here. The protesters distrust and loathe the Hong Kong government, which they see as essentially just a proxy or a puppet of Beijing. Beijing is losing confidence in the Hong Kong government to control and, and bring about order. Beijing has no, doesn't even recognize the legitimacy of a protest by the protesters there. So there's no middle institution or group which is stepping up to mediate this. And so the idea that there's going to be some sort of uh, negotiated solution here. If we say the three parties are the Hong Kong government, the protesters, and Beijing, I see that as unlikely unless something changes over the weekend and some of the Hong Kong elite step in and come up with a solution which speaks to both the concerns of Beijing, namely, we don't want protesters to get a clear victory at the expense of Beijing, but also speak to some of the core concerns of the protesters, which is about some sort of commission on police violence. Something needs to happen with Carrie Lam. Leader of Hong Kong. Yeah, the leader of Hong Kong, who's widely seen as inept, I think, on all sides. But I, I see that unlikely, which is why Professor Pei and I had pieces this week thinking through this of if it breaks down and it looks now like that's a, kind of a 50-50 chance here. What does that mean? What, is that, what does that look like? What's the collateral damage? Does this end Hong Kong as a, as a city? What does this do for U.S.-China relations? Is this a short-term occupation or is this a, a long-term bloody occupation? All these questions are in the air. And I think that in and of itself that we're having this discussion in 2019 is, is extraordinary. So Hong Kong has a population of 7.5 million. The think tank RAND has suggested that China would need about 150,000 troops. So the RAND study is, is actually just a conservative general estimate for an occupying force. So an abstract occupying force, what would be the ratio that you need between troops and, and local population? So tell me about that. So as we think through this scenario of we've got People's Armed Police, which is a paramilitary internal security force, which used to report directly to the state council, which is another word for the government. But under recent military reorganizations, they now report directly to the Central Committee, which is the Communist Party's key leadership institution. Xi Jinping is the head of the standing committee of the Politburo of the Central Committee. So it essentially reports to him. There are rumors that the People Armed Police, which is now amassed along the southern border of China and, and Hong Kong, could potentially go in to bring about order. And so it brings up the question of what would that look like? How large would that force be? And so to return to this RAND study, which is now a couple decades old, but nonetheless was looking at the historical experience of occupations. The conservative ratio they came up with is one 
to 50. Essentially, you need one soldier for every 50 civilians you have. So if we extrapolate from a population of 7.5 million in Hong Kong, we're talking about essentially 150,000 members of the PAP, which is roughly 10% uh, of the overall size of it. So you're talking about 150,000 police but that doesn't include PLA, People's Liberation Army. So that would just be police. Professor, can you explain the distinction between the police and the army in this case? And would there be a combination of both if China were to use force? First, I think they would probably require the army to maintain occupation. Yeah. Because they just cannot spare 150,000 police. It, it would be likely a combination of the anti-riot police, which is part of the regular police, the paramilitary force, that's people's armed police, which is the internal security force, and then the army, the Pe- People's Liberation Army, that is a war fighting machine. How many People's Liberation Army are in Hong Kong now? 6,000. It's way... So small. Small. And uh, based on their past experience, it would be a mistake to use the army to do crowd control because the army is trained to kill people. Right. So they'll end up inflicting unnecessary casualties. And do you believe there's a danger of that happening here if China were to use any kind of force? It depends on how much they've learned from the Tiananmen debacle. Because Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen Square. Because 1989. 30 years ago, they did not even have a professional anti-riot police. They did not know how to do crowd control and so forth. Now they've acquired enough real-world experience. So we'll see whether they actually apply the experience to Hong Kong. But I think Hong Kong is really complicated. Hong Kong, people in Hong Kong speak a different dialect. So if you send those army, those troops, soldiers there, they will not be able to understand what the local population is. They need translators. So you actually need to get them more. You need to... Uh, supply more people. And Hong Kong's terrain, very dense urban setting, will make security really tough. And Hong Kong is a very well-managed city. It's a first world city, which means all its transportation, logistics, communication, are subject to a minor disruption can cause systemic paralysis. This is like New York City or this London. This is New York City, or, yes. Yeah. So you, all you need to do is to flip one switch <laughs> so it's subject to sabotage, and you can, it's a chaos. It's, it will be a nightmare for any occupying force. That's what I want to say. So it is very complicated. Yeah. So that's why I think it's, it's something that is holding them back, besides the obvious and near certain international condemnations and sanctions. And actually, I, I think of the, the factors weighing on Beijing's leadership, the, the one I think they're least concerned about is international reputation. Oh, yeah. I say that because if they were really concerned about international reputation, they wouldn't be tweeting out videos of PAP, yes. People's Armed Police Troops, mounting on the border in an attempt to hopefully bluster, but yeah. nonetheless threaten the local yeah. population. They wouldn't be detaining millions of, of uh, Chinese Uyghurs uh, in detention facilities. I do think, though, Professor Pei's points are are spot on about just the logistical difficulties. Also, I think probably more importantly is Hong Kong is not only the financial center of Asia and one of the the hubs of global capitalism, it's where Chinese elite money is is often parked or facilitated. Uh, And I don't mean just uh, private sector elite money. I mean Communist Party elite money, including the relatives, even some high-ranking officials, but but especially the relatives of Communist Party leadership. So as my, my colleague Scott Kennedy has said, if you thought the Panama paper leaks 
was interesting. The, right. the leaks of the banking papers and law firm papers in Hong Kong that will map out the financial networks of China's uh, China's elite, including in the party, I think is even more than the logistical difficulties of sending troops in, in urban warfare. I think it's the financial element which is giving Beijing pause right now. I cannot agree with this more. I think one of the loudest voices in Beijing constantly against rash action are those from the Communist Party at the highest level. Because their their biggest risk is money. Oh, yeah, because that's where f- their future is. Their kids yeah. all own luxury houses. You could say these are capitalist <laughs> fears of the, of yeah. the Communist Party here. So are- they, they will be the biggest losers. So they're cautioning the leadership to take a long to wait. view and yeah. wait. And the leadership is saying, we can wait, but at what cost? The leadership has to walk a very fine line. On the one hand, it wants to appear to be tough, to intimidate, to show that it means business. At the same time, it's actually aware of the catastrophic consequences if it sends its troops into Hong Kong. Right. So so this is a big, complex problem for China. And it's, in a sense, it's an asymmetric problem for China. Well, it's the the biggest test of Xi Jinping's leadership. This is the biggest test of his leadership. Because there are no good options. (laughs) And see whether he can come up with a very good solution. This is a bigger test for him than dealing with the United States on trade or the South China Sea. Dealing with trade is difficult. But dealing with trade, he can have a narrative. That is, this is a big power. This is a superpower that doesn't want us to grow rich. But dealing with Hong Kong, this is a little city compared with China, and you can't do a thing. That's actually a much tougher question. I think time is a factor here as well. When when we're talking about the U.S.-China relationship, that's a long-term strategic challenge for the Communist Party to deal with, right? It's not a short-term existential political problem they have to deal with where there's absolutely no good options right in front of them. That's what they're staring down the barrel of when it comes to Hong Kong. This is a powder keg that also rouses up long-standing fears of the Communist Party. So this is a student movement. Guess what else was a student movement? The Communist Party was started by a bunch of students. The May 4th movement in 1919 was, was started by students. Student protests in 85 and 86 culminated in 1989. Um, students have played a critical role in unsettling authoritarian regimes, not only in China, but around the world. Second, this is a quasi-secessionist dispute. We're coming up on the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. At the core of the message of the Communist Party is territorial integrity. You have a, a, a old colonial stronghold, which as a, a very nationalist victory, they won back uh, under Deng Xiaoping in 1984 and then 1997 took control. And that was supposed to be about returning to the fold, the great embrace of the motherland, the Chinese people finally unified as one. And now you have a group of a large group of, of these citizens saying, we don't want this. That's why Beijing has to blame this on hostile forces, black hands, because the alternative- CIA. CIA. Now, that's an old playbook. Yeah. But the reason they do that is the alternative to that explanation is that there's an organic grievance that the Chinese people have about the rule of the Communist Party. And that's just absolutely not a tenable argument for the party. So um, you blame black hands. Isn't there something else that we're not, we're talking around it, but we're not talking about it? Aren't they staring down the barrel of democracy? I think behind this is not just democracy. It is the will of the people. Right. I think that this time we've witnessed people power in Hong Kong. Two million people in the streets and two out of 7.5 million. 
and less scary. Too many yeah. highly educated, upwardly mobile yeah. people. Yeah, well, just too, too many people who uh, used to be called totally materialist, materialistic and consumerist. Uh, <laughs> but they now turned very political. And that's a scary scene. If I may just maybe add some context or maybe just a slight disagreement on the framing of this, I think it's our natural tendency to look at these movements in other countries as either pro-democracy or, or you know, pro-freedom. And that's how we've often interpreted the 1989 protests. But, but like in 89, we're seeing that actually here there's just a larger set of grievances of which um, democracy plays a role. But really, if we were to take a closer look at what is being articulated in terms of frustrations down in Hong Kong, it's about income inequality. It's about lack of affordable housing. It's, it's about the lack of upward mobility. Um, it, it's about pressures from uh, mainland immigrants and cost rises. So there's a whole set of concerns here which have come together uh, at this moment, and they're seeing some people articulate a goal of universal democracy, essentially. They're, they're going to uh, elect the leader of Hong Kong. But that's, as a, I think, a means to a, a, a better end of tackling some of these serious social issues which have been mounting in, in Hong Kong. So uh, democracy is definitely an element of it, but I think it's, as is often the case, it's a complicated picture of, of social, political, economic concerns. We love our democracy in America. What can I tell you? <laughs> but I mean, you know, seriously though, two million people is nothing to sneeze at. No, no. This, uh, I think, at the height of Tiananmen Square movement, yeah. uh, there was only one million people. Yeah, and Beijing was a lot bigger city. Right. Well, the volatile cocktail here is also the role of technology and social media. I mean, this is the revolution being tweeted and and live streamed. And so, again, if we go back to how Beijing is likely looking at this. Um, in 1989, the ability to control the propaganda apparatus made it slightly easier to essentially stem news of the, of the, uh, of the carnage, of the crackdown. And even in the lead up to it, it, this was print media days. Now, even under that circumstances, Tiananmen Square wasn't a Beijing phenomenon. It was a nationwide phenomenon. You had, so imagine now when the party has a much more difficult job of essentially how do we frame and control, how do we frame the narrative and control information so as the um, disturbances down there stay constrained and contained and don't break out to other parts of China or something that is, is of a, uh, worthwhile talking about is Taiwan, who is looking at what's happening in Hong Kong. They have their own presidential elections coming up in January 2020. The promise from some folks is that come into the embrace of Beijing and, and, and everything will work out fine. It has been a harder argument to make for a long time, but certainly troops mounting on the border, even if China doesn't send troops in, I think the damage has been done. I oh, think absolutely. this absolutely blows up reunification hopes um, because how would you argue that, that Beijing will respect any sort of agreement you have about uh, uh, one country, two systems? Really good point. Okay, so you both think that there's been some damage done here. There's no question. Beijing's likely to wait this out because they don't have a lot of good options. What are the protesters likely to do next? Well, I think that's a very big challenge for them. First, they need to regroup. They need to come up with new tactics, not just disruptive tactics, but tactics can rally public support, can present very serious challenge to the authority of the Hong Kong government, and also forced Hong Kong government to respond. Because in this scenario, uh, in the scenario we are seeing, the Hong Kong government simply ignores the demands of the protesters. And that's very frustrating for, for the protesters. 
during the umbrella movement, that's the same tactic, and the protesters ended up not achieving anything. So this time, they're not going to go back home empty-handed. They want to turn 2 million protesters into 2.5 or 3 million protesters or more. And they're not likely to do that if they keep miscalculating. Exactly. So I think they've got to figure out a new rallying cry, a new tactic, or a set of new actions. And it's quite challenging because people do get tired of protest. In Hong Kong, today is very hot, humid. It's hard to go to take to the street. One other factor that's worth mentioning here is the school school year starts pretty soon. If you're Beijing, you're you're trying to find ways to in this, especially this period right now, you're trying to find ways to break up uh, the protest, to delegitimize the protest, and hopefully find ways to dissipate uh, some of the cohesion of it. Right. So you're going to have some amount of students who are going to go to school. You've had, I think, the PR hit from the detention of the the video uh, recorded detention of the Global Times Chinese uh, mainland Global yeah. Times propaganda worker at the airport, which was absolutely brutal to watch. But the the road that Professor Page just uh, laid out of success for protesters, that gets us back to the the framing discussion here, which is success for protesters pushes us closer closer to those uh, to that mixture of military and people's armed forces going in. And so that's the conundrum that we're going to be watching is success for Beijing is the end of this. Right. Success for the protesters is the end of effectively Beijing's control or, or meaningful control or at least a, a, a credible pledge or, or set of actions to build trust and to walk back some of Beijing's more aggressive actions and to increase more citizen input into decision making in Beijing. We can agree on what both sides want. What we can't see, though, is what's, what's the path forward when, to go back to earlier part of our discussion, there's no trust and no mediating institutions. I think in terms of timing, the most likely point of crisis is mid-October. That's after October 1st celebrations in Beijing, and the weather will be cooler, so you could have bigger protests. And if the Chinese government and Hong Kong government make mistakes. Because in this process, this is very, very dicey process. Both sides can make mistakes. And the specific mistakes I'm thinking about on the part of the Chinese government or Hong Kong government is uh, excessive use of police force resulting in deaths. So far, thank God, not a single person, not a single protester has been killed. That's right. But if one person gets killed, then they're going to lose control of the situation. Or if protesters do something that's very radical. And here I'm thinking of hunger strike because that's how Tiananmen Square happened. Before hunger strike in Beijing, that's before Gorbachev's arrival in Beijing, there was a different order of magnitude. (laughs) The hunger strike elevated this, presenting the government with an impossible situation to deal with. So we're not there yet, but the possibilities are real. Thank you both very much for being here. This is obviously a situation we're going to be watching very closely in the days and weeks to come. And, uh, Professor, we're going to be calling on you uh, again and again for your insight into this. Jude, thanks for being here. Professor, thank you for being here. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 